fast painter. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. Friends, your story, my story, the story of all creation, of all history, is a story of longing. A story of longing for the coming of a Savior who would take away the sin of the world. Longing is a yearning desire or a, or a craving for something that, that you don't yet have or experience or for not experiencing something you have. It's a desire, it's a, it's a hunger and ache for things to be different than they are. It's an ache for things to be different because we've all experienced sin. Uh, the brokenness and the pain of a fallen world where things are not as they should be. We all, we all know this longing because we all know the brokenness and pain of a world where things are not as they should be. This means that we who are in Christ live with a constant battle. A battle of knowing that we are saved and stand complete in Christ on the one hand. <clears throat> in Colossians 2.10, if you want to look up a cool verse for that. A battle of knowing we're saved and stand complete in Christ. And then, on the other hand, feeling in our flesh, our, our bodies, the pull of sin. We're saved. We know the love and truth of Christ's perfect and sinless life lived for us. And yet we also know the evil desires that wage war against our souls. In a really great passage in Romans, Romans 7, 21-23, Paul says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So for the believer in Christ, longing is about seeking a greater relationship with God so we know less of sin and more of His holiness. That is the delight of the follower of Christ. To know less of sin and more of the pleasure of the holiness and the goodness of God. To live more from the truth of His promises about the, things, about the way the things really are and not the way that they sometimes seem to us to be. You, you, can, you can choose to be a whiny and miserable person, or you can choose to participate in what Isaiah is saying here that God is doing. Those are the stakes. You can choose to be a whiny, miserable person who wallows in brokenness. Or you can choose to participate in what Isaiah is saying here that God is doing in Isaiah 35, despite what our own flesh sometimes convinces us otherwise. I have a friend who is a pastor here in East Tennessee who uh, <clears throat> he's a minister in Johnson City who tells a story of one of his predecessors, a minister before him whose name was Frank. Uh, Frank is quite old now. He's in his 90s and he's He's hunched over and he can barely walk but a, a couple inches at a time. He's been riddled with arthritis and sickness for many years. He has plenty of reasons to, to gripe and to give up. 
But uh, one day, just a few years back, when we were going through some drought here in East Tennessee and the, the ground was dry and crackly, my friend saw Frank coming in the door at the church building. And he said, sure is dry out there, huh, Frank? And Frank just stopped for a second and looked up and flashed a, just a wry little smile and winked and he said, the rains will come again. They always do. That's, that's a man with wisdom of years of following God and knowing what's coming. And living in the now based on what he knows has come and what will come. Don't you want to be like that? So, so confident in God and his work that you speak and you behave and you, you live, you, you smile from a place that knows intimately the truth that God will do what he has promised. Don't you want to be like that? I know I do. I, I know that I want to hold firm to the truth of this passage today, which is the big idea we've shown you at the top of the study notes there, that, that Christ has come. And because Christ came, our longing is not foolish desire. It's not, it's not vain. Our longing is not foolish desire, but a confident hope. It's a confident hope. And friends, that's what Christmas is. It's a promise on which God followed through. Christ is God making good on his promise to save us. And because Christ came, longing is not foolish desire, but it's a confident hope, which is something the Jews needed here in Isaiah 35. They were in need of, of confident hope. Isaiah was written at a time in Israel's history when the, the kingdom was divided Half of it already under the control of foreign invaders. The other half about to be. They were living, the, the Jews, the people of God here, were living, living in a threatening world where the Gentiles were in charge. Which means that, that hope to them seemed like a vain and foolish idea. And so in the middle of that kind of world, the Israelites, the people of God, are wondering, where's God in all this mess? What happened to being the chosen people? You've called us. You've promised this to us. Where are you, God, in all this mess? How often this week have you felt like that about your life? God, where are you in all this mess? We experience the brokenness of Romans 7 when relationships seem to be marked more by brokenness than peace. When marriages seem to grow apart more than they do together. When your, when your longing for a mom or a dad who loves you unconditionally was something that seemed to lost steam decades ago for you. When you work day in and day out with little return, when the baby is always crying, the laundry never done, the car always needs fixing, and the bank account never seems to be enough and close to empty. In that kind of world, like the world of Isaiah 35, the hope of salvation almost seems like wishful thinking. Like an anachronistic, pie-in-the-sky idea that's not for me today. It's this mess 
this desert that has just been described in Isaiah 34. In the entire, in fact, in the entire first half of the book of Isaiah, warnings of judgment and the consequences of sin. And then in this introduction to chapter 35, breaks into that mess a picture of abundance and a fertile land and a joyful life. It's a chapter that must seem to be out of place for the Israelites who, who first received this word from God. This is, this is a word of promise that God will take them from a desert to a garden. Pick it up at verse 1 in Isaiah 35. It says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. What a cool turn of phrase that is. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. Scripture is a beautiful book that's filled with really cool descriptions of the work of God. Now we know, of course, that a wilderness does not have emotions. Here Isaiah is using a literary tool called anthropomorphism. I'll spell that for you in a second here. It's spelled A-N-T-H-R-O for the note takers. A-N-T-H-R-O-P-O-M-O-R-P-H-I-S-M. Anthropomorphism. This is attributing human characteristics or behavior to non-human objects. This is used a lot in literature and in poetry, and it's used a bunch of places in Scripture. So that's why I'm pointing it out to you, because it's something that's helpful to have in your Bible uh, toolbox. So anthropomorphism is attributing human characteristics to non-human objects. And we see this anthropomorphism here in verse 1, and we see it again in the next phrase. It says, The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus, Then in verse 2, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Deserts, of course, can't literally rejoice with joy and singing. But it's a way of saying that when God works, he redeems and he transforms wastelands into gardens. He he redeems and transforms, transforms wastelands into gardens. In other words, a place where nothing can grow much is going to suddenly blossom like the crocus, it says. The crocus is a flower that is known to peek through the snow, in fact. It's one of the first signs of the coming of spring, uh, especially in the Middle East. It says, The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, meaning the desert. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. This describes uh, the plain along the Uh, Western Mediterranean Sea. It's roughly 40 miles long and about 8 to 15 miles wide. This is a famous area in the Bible for being a very beautiful and productive land. It's a fertile place. In fact, the the root for that word carmel there sounds a lot like, it's the same root, it sounds a lot like as well, the word for garden. So this is used throughout the Bible for a garden-like place of beauty that, that symbolizes sanctuary and shalom, perfect peace with God. So, the, so this desert's going to turn into a, a perfect peace with God kind of place here. And these verses 1 and 2 here in 35 are a reversal of the judgment that is talked about early on, earlier on in Isaiah. In fact, in Isaiah 33, 9, It says the land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. So there's more of this theme of going from from desert to wasteland, from from vain uh, hopelessness to confident 
hope. It says they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. This is a cool little phrase here at the end of verse 2 I want to spend just a little bit of time on. It says they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. I want you to notice something interesting in the text here. It says in verse 1, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Then in verse 2, it, meaning the desert, shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, meaning the desert. And then it says at the end of verse 2, they, instead of it, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So is they referring to the desert or is it referring to something else? Well, it, it can't refer to the desert because the desert is an it and not a they. And they in verse 2 doesn't refer to Carmel and Sharon because these are words that further describe the majesty that will be given to it, meaning the desert. They are parallel with the preceding phrase. So the they must be identified elsewhere. Turn to verses 9 and 10 for just a second here for the answer. Verses 9 and 10, that same chapter. It says, No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. The there and the it there is referring to the, the way of holiness, the highway that we'll look at later. Verse 9, it says, They shall not be found there, but the redeemed, the redeemed shall walk there. So no lion shall be there, referring to the way of holiness in verse 8, nor shall there be any ravenous beast come upon it. And then they, referring to the lion and the ravenous beast, shall not be found there, but the redeemed, and that's the first referent for they in verse 2. They shall walk there. And then in verse 10 it says, and the ransomed, there's our they again. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. This is speaking of the glory of the Lord that they will see. And then it says, everlasting joy shall be upon their, there it is again, their heads, and they, there it is again, shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So what this means is that in this passage, <laughs> this anthropomorphic, this human-like gladness and singing of the desert will not just be a figurative idea for the physical earth, but that God's glory will be seen by his people. In other words, those who buy into this life-giving way of seeing the world those who seek salvation from the Savior and not from self, they will see the glory of the Lord because the Lord is coming. That's the promise in this passage. The point is this, that God was promising to make known his majesty and his glory in the middle of a context that can seem like he wasn't even there. God was promising to make known his majesty and glory, in the middle of a context where the people of God were wondering, where are you in this mess of my world? In this mess of foreign invaders being in charge, when you promised that we would have a king. And the desert of the earth here is a parallel. It's a picture of, of how our lives are the context that can sometimes seem like he's not there. Don't you sometimes feel that way about your own life? Like it's 
like it's devoid of the presence of God in any way that is a hope and encouragement from day to day? Don't you sometimes feel like you're longing for the presence of God is a little bit vain hope? I'm not just trying to be negative, but the Scripture in Romans 7 and many other places talks about the struggle we have with spirit and flesh. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like, hello God, <laughs> remember me, I'm right here. Remember all that glory and amazing power that I see in the Bible? Where is it? Where is it in my life? I know you all feel that. Now, friend, here's the rub. Here's the rub. You have the option of giving in to the lie that God didn't come because the world is broken and it's a lost cause. Or you can lean into the truth that God came to bring life. As in, that's an option for your viewpoint here and now. As, as we walk out those doors today, the question is, are you going to live and talk today from or out of the promises of the God who came to bring life? Or are you going to just wallow in the lie from the evil one that a broken world is a hopeless world? Ask yourself, am I going to start living and talking today from out of the promises of the God who came to bring life, or am I going to wallow in the lie from the evil one that a broken world is a hopeless world? Those are the options. Verses 1 to 2 are a, a picture, a picture of hope from desert to garden uh, that encourages us in verses 3 and 4 to continue on that road, that highway, that, that path from, from desert to garden and weak to strong. This is an encouragement to stay strong when it seems like there are overwhelming reasons to see the world through a filter of defeat and hopelessness. In Deuteronomy 7.1, as the people of God were making their way into the promised land, it says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. <laughs> the Jews were a small and weak nation politically and in terms of military might. So these verses here in Isaiah 35 ring true as confidence builders. It says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. It's picked up later on in Hebrews 12. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. He will do what he said he will do. God promises strength even though we experience weakness. When you're feeling defeated, God shows up. The coming of Christ followed a 400-year period that was called by the Jews the silence of God. So they were prime for a word from God. This is why John wrote in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, verse 14, that the word 
became flesh. God spoke through the lived word of Jesus. So friend, be encouraged that we serve a God who is strong even when things seem weak. Even when, as we grow older, our weakness becomes more apparent. In verses 5 to the first half of 6, we go from lame to leaping. Now in the time of Isaiah here, when the Gentile enemy around them was in charge of them and their lands, these next verses may have sounded a little like Pollyanna silliness to them, but listen to what God promises in 5 to 6a. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. They're stuck in, in a wilderness and they're under enemy rule. So these words sound not only hopeful, but almost downright ridiculous to them. We'll come back to this in Matthew 11. But this promise here is hinting at more than just nice flowers peeking up through the snow to signal spring. What's being promised here is a transformation beyond what the people of Israel had ever experienced and beyond what most of them ever expected. What's being promised here is spiritual rebirth and renewal. And, and this verse, taken along with Matthew 11 and, and others, uh, sheds light on when this renewal would happen. It says, verse 5, then, meaning in that day when the promised Messiah comes, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the, lamb, the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. These are miracles only God can do. <laughs> only God can make bodies that don't work right, work right. Only God can breathe life into dead bones. In the next verses, this promise of spiritual renewal is pictured as a living water. In verses 6b to 7 here, a water that, that brings life and growth. It's not living just because it's moving, though that's part of one of the New Testament definitions of it. It's living because it brings life and growth. Verses 6b and seven say this, for, meaning again, this is referring to the day when the promised Messiah comes, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. The Messiah, the anointed one, brings life and growth and renewal out of wilderness and desert and drought. In a place where your feet first were burned by sand and the earth is dying of thirst all around, God promises springs of water that will bring life. Look at these next few verses, which are super cool verses here at the end. This last three verses, 8 through 10. I love the way Scripture fits together and how it gives us metaphors for what God is doing in the world and in our lives. Look at verse 8. It says, And a highway... This is referring to at least uh, a paved road where rocks and dirt do not hinder progress. Uh, but it might also refer to this metaphorical sort of highway that, that didn't yet exist. Uh, and An up-in-the-air kind of road, a sort of as-the-crow-flies road, as if it's a straight-shot-to-God kind of road, which is a cool picture of what's being provided in Jesus. And as the crow flies way to knowing God and having His presence in us through Jesus. So it says a highway shall be there. And that there is 
in the desert still. So even in the desert, there's a road to God. And this road, this highway has a special name. It says, it shall be called the way of holiness. This is the way of the pilgrims who are on their way to Zion, the place of peace with God, which is that place where atonement for sin is made. And only the pure can walk this road. It says, the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. This is only for those who are holy. And I love this. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. As in, like, hello, walk this road here. It's straight. You don't have to turn. You just go that way. Even fools don't go astray. Which means it's a safe road. It's not a hard to understand road. Verse 9 says, No lion shall be there, nor shall there be any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. This word redeemed for the note takers was used when a, when a person delivers especially a blood relative from some sort of formal obligation, be it legal, financial, social. So, to redeem was to deliver a blood relative from an obligation, which means that those who walk this road are considered by God His blood relatives. Because in Jesus, as He redeems us, we become a part of His covenant promise. We are adopted into His family and take on His name, Christian. This theme continues in verse 10 here. The redeemed theme continues. It says, and the ransomed of the Lord. It's just another kind of way of saying a similar idea. This idea of being ransomed is in tandem with the redeemed uh, idea. To be ransomed is to be bought back, to be freed from the legal, legal obligation to pay our debt of sin. So both these terms, redeemed and ransomed, emphasize a status that is based on a divine act of grace that frees us from being bound to sin. This is huge. This is huge for being a part of the new covenant family of God. A status that is based on a divine act of grace that frees us from being bound to sin, which is who we were, which was the status before the Messiah. So it is these redeemed and ransomed ones who shall return who shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. So check this out. This is huge because this new freedom this new status of being redeemed and ransomed is what is promised when god begins to establish his kingdom by sending the messiah this new status of freedom from being bound by sin is what is promised when god begins to establish his kingdom it's not finished 
it's begun. That is what is promised when God begins to establish his kingdom by sending the Messiah. And that is exactly what we see in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 5. I want you to turn there with me. We'll finish up with this today. Matthew 11, 2 through 5 here. Pick it up at verse 2. It says, Now when John, this is John the Baptist, John's the forerunner to Jesus. Uh, Micah in the Old Testament refers to uh, John the Baptist as the preparer of the way. The preparer of the way. Now when John heard in prison, press pause for just a second here. This is interesting, by the way, because John understood his purpose to be preaching repentance. And here he is sitting in jail. So John had his own sort of where's God in all of this mess moment. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he wanted to test the claims that he'd heard, the deeds of Christ. So it says he sent word by his disciples, verse 3, and said to him, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Obviously, John the Baptist knew clearly who he was, who God made him to be, what his gifts were, how he was supposed to use them. And so he's sitting there, I'm supposed to be preaching repentance, and I'm sitting in jail. And he hears about this this Christ and tests the claims, and he sends word by his disciples and says, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Obviously, John longed for the coming of the Messiah. John's biggest problem was solved. I think sometimes we go through our lives so focused on what's right in front of us, what's going on in the day, or hopefully the next day, (laughs) but we come to our lives so focused on these things that make us feel like where is God in all this mess when your number one problem is forever solved in the person of Jesus. So, so come what may. John the Baptist is sitting in prison going, ah, now I get it. <laughs> My problems are really solved. Prison is nothing. John longed for the coming of the Messiah because he longed for salvation from sin. He longed for an answer to the problem of being unable to have perfect relationship with God. So he asked the question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Because he was one who was longing. I hope you are too. Longing for him to return. Longing for salvation from sin. Jesus answered them, verse 4. And in this passage, this is really cool. Jesus knows scripture perfectly. And he cites in our passage 
uh, in Matthew 11, our passage from Isaiah 35, and about five others, all from Isaiah, which is cool because Jesus is saying, hello, hello, those of you listening to what I'm saying, Isaiah is about me. The most major of the major prophets is talking about me, Jesus was saying. So he answered them. Here's the evidence. Verse 4, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Friend, the good news is that Christ came and your longing is not a foolish desire, but it's a confident hope in the Jesus who answers by saying, I'm the answer to your problem. Your number one problem. Which means that you can live from the place. You can speak from a place. You can be motivated to work from a place that is the truth of confident hope that it's not placed in your goodness which will forever fail you. We all know the brokenness of our own works. They are infinitely unable to save us and a dead end. They are not the way of holiness. They are a way of us being Lord of our own lives. We must continue to learn to live from the truth from a place that knows that our confident hope is not placed in our goodness but in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah that God promised. And that's why we celebrate this season. That he came to take care of our number one problem. And for that, we're forever grateful. Let's pray together.